Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Tori Rigby, author of the dark fantasy Dreamcatcher series, as well as the contemporary YA novel, Because I Love You. Tori joined me today to talk about not letting excitement make decisions for you early on in your career, doing your research, and some red flags to look for while searching for agents. Riley didn't mean to kiss her sister's boyfriend, at least not the first time, but it doesn't matter because her sister caught them together, ran away upset, and never came home. As evidence mounts that something terrible has happened, Riley can't bring herself to admit what she's done, that she's the reason her sister ran away. How do you face the guilt of wishing a person gone when they actually disappear? Avoid the Size of the World, a YA novel by Rachel Alpine, is available now through Simon Pulse. You entered the publishing world under a pen name, Vicki Lee, writing the Dreamcatcher series, which is a YA paranormal romance published by a small press. Tell us about that experience and why you chose that route initially. The reason I chose that route was because I was so immature in the world of publishing. The first book in that series, Catch Me When I Fall, was only the second manuscript I'd ever written. So I'd just begun to dip my toes into the waters of the publishing industry when I received a contract from my former publisher. I'd been wise enough at the time to seek an agent prior to signing so that they could negotiate the contract. So I signed with the first agent who showed interest. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily the wisest choice. I since have parted ways with that agent. In fact, they're actually no longer agenting at all. But they advised me that the contract with my former publisher was a good one. So then they never bothered to submit my manuscript to any other houses. If I could go back and do it again, I would probably query first. What happened was with this small press, I won a Twitter pitch contest, and because I won it, they offered me this contract with their publishing house. So I wish I had not done that. I wish I'd just gone the traditional route of simply querying agents and getting one of those first, uh, really taking my time to research the agents and talk to more than one. I guess really find someone who I felt was a great fit that would be very long-term because I have since parted ways with my publishing house as well. I purchased back my rights to my Dreamcatcher series. Right now, just the eBooks are available on Amazon. I'm not sure that I will be able to finish the series anytime soon. I'm going to move on as Tori Rigby and write some new things and then pursue the agenting route again. See if I could do it right this time. So when you were offered a contract after a Twitter pitch contest, which congratulations on winning that because those are not easy. That's a very specific skill. So it looks like you know how to pitch. So they offered you a contract. Was this just based on the pitch or did they read the manuscript? They did read the manuscript. After the Twitter pitch contest, I submitted the manuscript and um, she basically didn't give me any edits. She just said that she wanted it. So then that's when I decided to pursue finding an agent because I didn't want to try to 
negotiate my own contract. So you knew you were going to be offered a contract. Uh This made you more attractive than to agents because any agent that you would be approaching, they're like, well, she already has a contract in hand. She's just asking me to be obviously her agent, but the person that is going to okay this contract. You had someone say, yes, I will represent you in this deal. And you were so excited by this that you move forward. Is that, am I understanding correctly? Yep. You're understanding correctly. I was so excited that you know, she wanted to offer me representation that I just kind of was like, cool, got an agent, you know, but sure. I didn't really no, take I, time to talk to anybody else. I regret doing that. I wish I would have taken the time to talk to a few more agents and talk long-term goals rather than just that one manuscript. And, you know, as I got to know this agent a little bit better, I could tell that she was more interested in being an author than an agent. Mm. Has since happened. She's not agenting anymore. She writes her own books and self-publishes them. So But I completely understand the compulsion. I completely understand the knee-jerk emotional reaction of, oh my gosh, someone wants my manuscript and someone wants to represent it. I completely understand. I understand the regret, but I also understand that elation that something is moving for you. I had something happen to me a long time ago. I was, I believe I was in college yet. I was almost caught up in a scam, which I should state for our listeners Some aspiring authors do not know this, but there is actually no accreditation involved with becoming an agent, a literary agent. All you have to do to be a literary agent is to say that you are one. There are associations like the AAR, which is the Association of Authors Representatives, and they have a code that they operate under, but it is a pay membership And not all agents are members of AAR. So there are plenty of legitimate agents that are not under the AAR umbrella. But there are also some so-called agents that do not have any kind of qualification to be one. I got pulled in by one a long time ago. Someone was officially listed as an agent. I sent them my manuscript. They sent it back, declining to represent, but saying that it held a lot of promise and that they had a friend who was a freelance editor that they suggested I take the manuscript to and have the friend take a look at the manuscript, give me feedback on that, work on it, polish it, maybe bring it back to the agent. I was leery of this because at the time, I don't know if these still exist, but at the time it was a common con where you would then take your manuscript to the so-called freelance editor who would give you notes and charge you, I think, a dollar or maybe $2 a page. Like, it was significant. So you would make changes based on these notes, take your revised manuscript to this so-called agent and say, hey, I saw your friend, I did some work on it, and they read it and say, you know, it's just, it's just not there yet, we're not interested, sorry. And you handed, let's say, $2,000 to the freelance editor who then gives the so-called agent a thousand and they split and there's nothing illegal about that. I was smart enough to not follow up on that offer. And then I got a phone call out of the blue from the supposed editor who was like, yeah, I'd really like to work on your manuscript with you and was soliciting me for money because of my reading online about such interactions. I was like, okay, no, but I was close. I wanted to say yes. I understand that immense relief that you may have cracked something. Since then, I've edited for a small publishing house, and I actually interned with an agency. 
have experience with someone who I know is an excellent agent. That experience kind of opened up my eyes. This is what I should look for next time. There are a lot of scam agents out there. I've heard of some people who have talked about agents asking for money up front. Uh, No, run away. (laughs) Run away from that because the agent, they make their money when they sell your book. That's how they make their money. So if they want the money up front, run away. Huge red flags. It's interesting to me that you interned. Did you get into that because you wanted to learn more in order to help your career as an author? Or were you interested in being on the other side of the desk in the publishing realm? I was actually interested in being on the other side of the desk at one point. I entered with Uva Stender with uh, Triada oh my, US. You did? I, I did. love Uva. I know. He was amazing. He was He's so kind. He's a fantastic kind. human being. He is. He's, he was so kind, so helpful, and he taught me how to write reader report, all sorts of things. And I just had a wonderful experience there. When I was writing all these reader reports and reading all these manuscripts, I was like, I want to be the one writing the manuscript. I don't want to be on this side. And with my experience with my former agent, I knew that if I wanted to write, I couldn't devote the kind of time to my authors that I represented. And I didn't want to be that person that she was to me. Mm -hmm. So that's when I decided this is not the career path. I need to pursue the writing side of it. And that's when I had a good talk with him. And he was like, go for it, girl, you got this. And so I was like, you know, thank you for your time. It was a great experience. That's fantastic. I think it would be a wonderful experience, regardless of whether or not you chose to move forward in an agenting capacity, because you would learn so much just seeing how a literary agent offices run and how busy they are. Tell us a little bit about that. Run us through the average day. From what I know of his average day, I mean, that guy probably gets hundreds of emails <laughs> in a week. There are a lot of authors out there seeking representation, and there are a lot of good ones who, unfortunately, he didn't quite connect with. His weeks were spent with reading readers' reports, reading his own manuscripts. I'd say he probably put in 60 to 70 hours a week. A lot of negotiating deals, a lot of um, working with editors. He is a great agent for that. Mm -hmm. He's very good at negotiations, at getting his authors the best deals that he can get. Tell us about a reader's report. What is that? After you read the manuscript, you basically outline it, kind of like an in-depth book review. And then you talk about the strengths and the weaknesses of the story, things that you loved, things that could improve. There were probably three... Three manuscripts that if I were an agent, I personally would have offered representation. But he just didn't quite click with any of them. And since he was the one that was going to have to fight for them, he didn't feel comfortable being their agent when he wasn't totally in love. The amount of hours involved that an agent puts in, especially, is Uwe heavily editorial with his clients? He is. He's very editorial, which is something that I love. It's definitely something Uh I would look for in an agent personally. You don't want an agent who doesn't love your manuscript as much as you do. They are going to fight tooth and nail for you. And so if they don't love it as much as you do, it's not fair to you. I think if an agent says, this was good, it's just not quite my cup of tea, you know, don't take it personally. Because someone out there will be like, oh my gosh, I love this book so much. (laughs) And that's the person that you want anyway. I think it's interesting to hear you talk about 
seeing some really excellent manuscripts come across the desk that still fail to gain representation, at least at the house that you interned at. It still says a lot about how subjective the industry is, how subjective the business can be. I wrote four novels before I got published. The fifth one was my first book. I freely acknowledge that the first three were unpublishable. (laughs) I think the fourth could have maybe worked. Uh, It was like an urban fantasy, though, so that ship had sailed by the time I got it out there. It was interesting to me with that one that did have some teeth that I was getting different reactions because I would get um, real reader reactions from the agents, feedback from them when I was on submission with my very first book. There was so much dichotomy in the feedback that I would receive. People would hate plot point A and love plot point B. And then a different editor is like, plot point A is perfect. B has to go. It kills everything. Just like readers, just like a readership. I think at that initial stage, they're always thinking in the back of their head, can this sell? Do I know someone this would fit with? Do I know someone that's looking for something like this? But in that initial stage, I think they are simply readers and they're looking to see what's going to excite them. And that is something different for everyone. So I love that you're saying that you would see really excellent manuscripts, not quite find a home in the particular agency that you were interning at. I think it's an important thing for authors to be aware of. A lot of the times we think about editors and agents as gatekeepers, and they are in a way, and they can be intimidating and that you feel like these are the people that you have to impress in order to get through But I think the most important thing to always remember about these people is that they are book people and they are readers Mm -hmm. and they are passionate about the same things that you are passionate about. Up next, why Tori disagrees with writing under different pen names for different genres. Newly married Simonetta Vespucci is the toast of Renaissance Florence and is a member of the Medici family's inner circle. But it is her budding friendship with a young painter, Sandro Botticelli, that most intrigues her mind and stirs her heart. Their bond goes beyond the artist-muse relationship as he immortalizes her in his masterpiece, The Birth of Venus. Discover Simonetta's story in The Most Beautiful Woman in Florence by Alyssa Palombo. Okay, so after the Dreamcatcher series, you decided to no longer write under your pen name, and you moved on to write under Tori Rigby and published Because I Love You from Blaze Press, which came out recently. Tell us a little bit about that move and how you made the connection with Blaze. The move came because a piece of advice that I had heard and since don't agree with was that I needed to brand my contemporary different from my fantasy. So I chose a different pen name to release Because I Love You, quite different from my dark fantasy that I had just written as Vicki Lee. I went that route, and then Blaze Publishing is founded by Crystal Dehaba, who also is known as Crystal Wade. Her pen name is Crystal Wade, and she was another one of the authors at my former publishing house. So I had met her in person. She became a friend, and then when she said she was opening her own small press, I had submitted Because I Love You to, oh gosh, probably like 50 agents and... Mm -hmm. Again, with the subjective thing, I got many, this is great, it's just not quite for me comments. And so it never found a home with an agent. So then I took it to as many of the presses as I could by myself, because not all of them accept unagented submissions. You know, eventually I, you know, submitted it to Crystal at, at Blaze Publishing and she loved it. So I was her first author 
So you said a piece of advice that you'd received that you've since come to disagree with was to rebrand and to drop the pen name of Vicki Lee because you had been writing dark fantasy and then released a contemporary. And I have heard that advice. I've heard it multiple times. I've had it given to me as well because I do write across multiple genres. Why did you change your mind then? Why have you come to believe that that was not the route to go? Because I think, especially in the young adult market, there are a lot of successful authors who write different genres and are still successful. You're a great example. You write across multiple genres, and yet people don't get confused. They're not like, oh, I thought she was a this author, or I thought she was a that author. (laughs) I don't necessarily agree with it. I know a few authors where I've loved both their fantasies and their contemporaries, and I didn't get confused. I was just like, oh, cool, they're putting out this genre. Something else I found very difficult was trying to run two social media accounts at the same time. yes, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, because for a while there, I had two Twitters, two Instagrams. And after a while, it's like, I can't be authentic anymore. So I definitely don't agree anymore with the, if you write two different genres, have two different pen names. I don't give much weight to that advice. I do think that it is something that has changed. I think 15 years ago, it was decent advice. I think it has something that has changed. You mentioned in YA, especially, you can jump genres fairly easily. Many authors do. And I think that that is very true. I think YA is more forgiving in the genre bending department. I will say that I am not known for my fantasy. I don't think my readers followed me over to it, which makes me sad because I actually love that book and I I found it so challenging to write fantasy. I don't know that it would have performed better had I used a pen name. I think it might have performed better if I sold it as a straight fantasy and I sold it in the adult market. I think that... Might have been different. I would have still kept my same name, though, because one of the first things that always occurs to me is I don't want to run different social media accounts. I have no interest in that. I do two hours of social media every morning. I'm not doing four. The only time that I do think it is a necessity for you to have a pen name is if you are writing erotica. Because if you write children's picture books and then you also release erotica you know or if you write middle grade and then you also write some really steamy stuff your audience is not one going to cross over and for another if they do you're probably going to be in some trouble so that to me is example of yes you absolutely must but other than that I don't think that it is sound advice definitely in the YA arena I can't speak to anything outside of that I do agree that the young adult market is completely different because if as long as you stay in young adult, it doesn't matter what you write. You're still going to have that young adult voice to your books. And there are a lot of readers out there, myself, for example, who loves contemporary and fantasy and sci-fi mm-hmm. and dystopian. I read across the genres. So it's always fun when your favorite author writes something different. And it's kind of like you get to know a different side of them, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I agree with you. Again, I think this is an arena where everyone needs to remember that authors are also readers. Everyone in the publishing industry is also a reader. I mean, not the accountants. Well, maybe they are. I don't know. We're all readers and we all enjoy reading. And because most of us, most people read widely, there are some people that only read a particular genre, but for the most part, 
most everyone I know reads very widely, which means any kind of inspiration for a story or anything such as that can come packaged in a different genre than what you envisioned writing. When I had my idea for my fantasy, it had been cooking for 15 years, and I kept saying to myself, Mindy, you're not a fantasy writer. You are not a fantasy writer. And that story just kept resurfacing and resurfacing and insisting on being written. And I'm like, okay, who says I'm not a fantasy writer if the story has chosen me? I need to execute that. It's being asked of me. My readership may not have crossed over a lot because the tone is so different. The words are so different. The phrasing, everything that I think my contemporary readers expected to see in a fantasy setting, they were like, what's this? And I'm like, well, it's a fantasy. I mean, it's a high fantasy. It, it isn't going to read like a contemporary. And I think that threw people and I totally understand. On the other hand, I would love for some true fantasy readers and diehards to pick that up and go, oh, cool, a new fantasy writer for me to check out. That would be nice. Coming up, writing fiction with deeply personal ties and knowing when to take your work to a small press. Tell us a little bit more about Because I Love You. Tell us about the book itself. So Because I Love You is a young adult contemporary, and it is about a 16-year-old girl who discovers she's adopted when she gets pregnant herself. So the story centers around Andy, the character. It centers around her experience of finding her birth mom and how that experience helps her decide whether or not she wants to keep her baby or place it for adoption herself. It's something that I went for major feels in it and being adopted myself. I really wanted to tell a story from a girl who's adopted and and seeking her family like I sought mine. So it was very, very personal. And and I think kind of like you, I never thought I'd be a contemporary author. I kind of like the fantasy side in heavy genre fiction, but Mm -hmm. this story just wouldn't leave me alone. And I knew I had to tell Andy's story at some point. Are you familiar with Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? No, I'm not. I have heard of it, but I've never read it. Okay, great. She wrote Eat, Pray, Love, which I actually have not read. I was at a convention, a photographer's convention, actually. One of the fellow writers who happened to be there, who's a photographer as well as a writer, really highly recommend this book about creativity and inspiration called Big Magic. So I listened to the audiobook as I drove home from this convention, and it was a fascinating book. I highly recommend it to any creative. But one of the things that Elizabeth Gilbert believes is that It's a very spiritual, mystical idea, but she believes that stories exist and that they choose an individual. So inspiration for her is a story settling on you and choosing you. And that that story, if you do not then give it its due diligence and pay attention to it and nurse it and take care of it, that it will move on and go find someone else, which... I thought was so interesting, and she tells a fantastic story about uh, meeting Ann Patchett and how she had been researching a book for years about something very, very niche, like a people trying to build a highway through the Amazon. She had tried to write this book and not paid enough attention to it, and she met Ann Patchett for the first time, and they were just making polite conversation, and she said, what are you working on? And Ann Patchett said, a book about building of a highway through the Amazon. The chances that such a very niche, diverse story would land on both of them. She's like, I didn't snatch that story. It waited on me 
long enough and then it went and it found Ann Patchett. And I thought that was so wonderful. I think it's such a neat way to look at it. Yeah, it is kind of funny. You're writing something and then all of a sudden you hear about this new book coming out and you're like, that's exactly like the one that I'm trying to write. (laughs) You know, it's just kind of weird how we all can get struck with these ideas and how similar they can be to other people who you've never met or, or talked to. There are only so many stories in the world. There's an article from The Telegraph in the UK called Everything Ever Written Boiled Down to Seven Plots. And that is a much understood maxim is that there are seven basic plots and that that's what we're all telling. In our own way, in a different way, we, all authors, are telling seven basic plots over and over again. So if you're interested in what those seven basic plots are, I invite our listeners to Google seven basic plots and see if you can come up with a book or a movie that doesn't follow one of those seven basic plots. It's actually very difficult. It's a really interesting theory. I can't say I disagree with it because you're right. I feel like there are only so many stories. That's the kind of story, because I love you, you were speaking of the adoption angle. And I think that it is so interesting how our personal lives interact with our fiction on such a strong level often. A lot of the things that inspire us often are things that we are passionate about. We have to be passionate about something in order to be inspired by it in the first place. That is something that I think is interesting. When we take something from our lives and we operate in a fictional arena. So can you talk a little bit about that? My experience with being adopted was definitely a heavy influencer on Because I Love You. A lot of pieces of me that go into everything that I write, but Because I Love You was definitely very personal. A lot of the emotions that are there about feeling abandoned, like why didn't my mom love me? Those kind of feelings, those are true feelings that I went through when I found out I was adopted. I know my adoptive parents love me deeply, but there's still that little twinge of why'd they let me go? Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I would assume that that would be a pretty universal, maybe not universal, but a common feeling among adopted children. It's definitely a common feeling. And, and I think along the same lines of that desire to find out where you came from. You grow up and, and your friends talk about so-and-so came from this country. My, my grandparents were from England and that kind of thing. And you're like, I have no idea, (laughs) you know, where, where my family came from. There is that longing to know, just know who they are. I have this personality trait. Who did I get it from? I put a lot of those emotions into Because I Love You. That's why I loved that book so much. Of course, it's very personal. I think all books are personal, but obviously when you are tackling a theme like that, that is beyond personal. Talk about working without an agent and what you feel the pros and cons of this are. And then I want you to talk a little bit about what your goals were coming off of Dreamcatcher, going into Blaze, and the comfort level that you felt with that press to proceed without an agent. Talk about that a little bit and uh, what you feel are the pros and cons of operating with or without. So I think... It is doable to have a successful writing career without an agent. 
but one of the cons is that you're never going to get published by one of the big houses. That is something that I have always wanted for my career. At one point, I wanted to be able to walk into Barnes & Noble and see one of those little displays with my book on it. And you're not going to get that without an agent. Because I Love You, I had submitted it to probably 50 different agents, and, and none of them loved it quite enough to want to take it on. I didn't want to give up on the story, but I kind of came to the realization that that kind of future wasn't necessarily in the cards for Because I Love You, which was a little hard to take at first. But then Mm -hmm. when you love a story as much as I loved that, I was kind of like, I still want people to be able to read it, even if it's not on a mass scale like I would get from Simon & Schuster or one of the other big houses. I still wanted to be able to tell Andy's story. I definitely felt comfortable with Blaze. Having talked to my friend Crystal so much, I knew how much she loved the story because she loved it as much as I did. I was like, okay, I'm really comfortable with her having it. They had a great marketing plan in place. They were going to give it as much love as I would have hoped for. That was a pro, being able to know that my publisher didn't just see my book as another book in their gallery, but something that they really, really, truly loved, which is one of the things that you will get from a small press because they often publish less books. They're able to devote more time to it. But Mm -hmm. on the other side, they don't have the funds that you'll be able to get with a large house. Right. So if you do go with a small press, you just have to know that the marketing push isn't going to be as strong, but you can at least know that they really, really love that book. Right. And there are so many things that you can do as the author to promote your book. It's not the million dollar rent the jumbotron in Times Square, but there are so many things that you can do. I believe that every little thing helps. I really do. I say yes to everything. People ask me to come to book clubs in their homes. People ask me to do Skypes, and I do these things because if I gain one reader with one book, that reader might say something to someone else or pick up a second book. You never know. I really do believe in the ripple effect or the snowball effect, and I absolutely understand wanting to walk into a Barnes & Noble and see a big display, an end cap of your books. And I mean, I'll tell you, as someone that's published by a major publisher, I have seen that once. It it doesn't happen for everyone because all of that space is actually paid for. That space is, in essence, rented. That's a really fun fact that I always wow my friends. Now, you know that that publisher paid more money to turn the book face out, right? And they're like, wait, what? They pay to have the books on the shelf? And I'm like, yep, the publisher is paying Barnes & Noble to put the books on the bookshelves. Yep. It's all part of a marketing plan. And the tables, when there's a pull-out table with all the books flat facing up, there's money there. Oh, yeah. And that's the kind of thing that authors don't necessarily know. I don't believe I knew that until I was two or three books into my career because it's not something that people really put out there. And that is one of the reasons why I do try to talk to people who are interested in self-pub about what they do or do not know about the business because they may not realize that nine times out of 10, 
maybe 9.5 times out of 10, you are not going to get a self-published book shelf space in Barnes and Noble, even your local Barnes and Noble. It has happened. I'm not saying it's impossible, but most of the time, the manager of the store is actually not in charge of the layout. That layout has been planned months in advance and paid for. And it doesn't mean that your book isn't just as good as the book that you want to set it next to. It just means that someone paid to have that book placed there. I understand that it makes it look like publishing is a closed business and that you can't get in unless you're with the big boys. And I know how that feels. I was on the other side of that fence for a very long time. I know that it makes it feel like an impossible thing to be that person with the end cap. But it is possible. That's something I can never stress enough. It is possible. I have no relations in publishing. No one in my family is a writer. I'm a farmer's daughter, and I got published, and my debut book had an end cap. Lastly, the pros and cons of working with or without an agent, and where to find Tori online. So then, you mentioned that it always has been a dream of yours to see your book on an end cap or in Barnes & Noble with a face out. So as your career moves forward, would you consider working with an agent then to aim for that big goal in the future, or do you prefer to handle your own career? I definitely want to work with an agent. They are able to open a lot more doors than I can do by myself. So it is a goal of mine to find an agent at some point, like what happened with Because I Love You. You know, if an agent's not interested in my novels, I'm not opposed to taking it to a small press mm-hmm. and, and submitting myself. I've had good success with Blaze Publishing. I've been very, very impressed with them and in how they actually have followed through on making sure my book is as successful as they can possibly make it. But I still don't think I'm quite ready to give up on that dream of having an agent and seeing my book in Barnes & Noble or Target or right. at the airport or something like that. Sure. God, the airport, that's coveted space, the airport. Bookstore. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Because that's a trapped audience right there. That's a captive audience. <laughs> Everybody wants a book. I love what you're saying about you haven't yet given up on that dream, and neither should you. I think it's an important thing to strike home to people that you can begin in self-pub. You can begin as an author for a small press and work your way up from there. It's all according to what your goals are and what you're looking for with your career and with that particular book. Like you were saying, Because I Love You, it wasn't finding traction with agents. And it does sound more of what they call a quiet YA, and those can be hard sells. But you knew that you wanted to see it incarnate in some way, and you found a way to make that happen. And it sounds like you're very happy with it. Yes, I'm very happy with it. That's wonderful. Any more little pieces of advice that you like to share as someone that has been behind the scenes and knows the ins and outs that you like to share? The biggest piece of advice that I would share with readers would be to don't fall into the comparison trap. Mm. Um, No author goes about the same route as another to publication. You can't compare yourself to another author because your stories aren't their stories and they might not be able to tell your story as well as you can. And so it's important to not compare yourself because that just leads to negativity, to questioning whether or not I can do this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And 
you know, it's important not to give up on yourself and your stories because no one can tell your stories the way you can. And like we touched on earlier, another thing that you can't forget is how subjective the industry is. Agents are readers, editors are readers, and just how we all have our preferences where I might give this book five stars, this person may have only given it three. It's really important to not let rejections get you down because someone out there might find it a five. That's very true. And you have to learn to steel yourself against rejection because it never stops. Your readers will reject you. I don't read my reviews. I used to, but I stopped because it felt the same way. It felt like rejection. It felt like I was still getting, in some ways, someone saying, no, this isn't good enough. I shouldn't have spent my time reading this book. All authors have reviews like that. If you are someone that is going to be unable to not read their reviews, you have to be able to steel yourself to that rejection that comes early on because it will continue to come. You will continue to have people not be impressed by your work. And that's just the way it is. As you said, subjectivity. I want to touch on real quick, last thing. You were talking about Dreamcatcher, and you said that you had purchased your rights back. Do you have any plans to move forward with that? I can say, as a librarian, I have bought your books before, and they were in my library, and I have kids pick up the Dreamcatcher series. They're, like, into it. The covers especially, they're eye-catching. I purchased all my rights back, so it's on me whether or not I continue the series. As far as plans for the future, part of me wants to complete the series just because I don't like when things aren't finished. I know the ending to the series. And so some days it really plagues me like, oh my gosh, readers don't know that ending that I had planned from the very beginning. It frustrates me. My experience with my publisher and the agent was so negative Mm -hmm. that sometimes I have a hard time picking it back up because I'm like, you know, these books are never going to go as far as I had hoped for them. But then, like you said, I know of some people who read the first two and they loved them and they loved to read the third one. So I think at some point I probably will end up finishing the series just because I kind of feel like I owe it to the people who have read the the first two. Don't want to just leave them hanging. (laughs) Because if I was on the other side and a series that I loved never got finished, I'd be like, hello, (laughs) I really want to know what happened. (laughs) Yeah. So I I probably will at some point, and I'll probably just stick with it being self-published. There are a few authors that I know of that have done pretty good being self-published. It's not one of those things where, you know, self-publishing is terrible and traditional publishing is awesome. There's some traditionally published authors who never really get their feet off the ground. And then there's some self-published authors who have like 20 books and they're doing great. I think sometimes there's still that stigma that self-publishing is means that the books suck. And that's not the case. I've read some self-published books that have been awesome. I will probably go that route with it if I decide to finish the series. Mm-hmm. which I probably will because I can't stand unfinished things. <laughs> to clarify for listeners, if they were to look for your Dreamcatcher series online and to see the ebooks and purchase them, that purchase does go to you, correct? Correct. Okay, that's great. You were saying about comparison being the thief of joy. There is nothing more true than this. And again, just like stealing yourself against rejection, it is something that you have to hone that skill because... 
there's always something to compare. There's always someone doing better than you. There's always someone who got that big marketing plan or that cool book trailer or the award that you were hoping for that you didn't even get nominated for, all of that stuff. And if you sit around and you think about it, it will make you insane. Why don't you tell listeners about where they can find you online, whether you have your social media or a site or anywhere they can find your books? My website is trigbybooks.com. And then you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Those are the three that I primarily use. (laughs) So if you really want to find me, those are the three places for sure that I'm very active on. And then Because I Love You can be found anywhere for sure on Amazon. And it's on Barnes and Noble's website. You can get it there. It's all over the place. And if you don't see it on your shelves in Barnes and Noble, just ask them to order it and it'll come to you. That's great. That's fantastic. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.